recorded live. Hello. Welcome to Christogenia. Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 28th, 2012. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh. Tonight I'm going to do something a little different. I got a whole stack of books in front of me. People would ask me why I know so much about history, and I really don't think I know that much, but I used to tell them that the real learning is in a bunch of dusty old books. But once you knock the dust off some of these books, they become old friends. There's no doubt about it. Once you familiarize yourself with them. Tonight I'm going to cover a paper I wrote some years ago. The, the paper was really, a real, it, it was really concise. It was even more concise than I remembered it when I read it this morning. Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy. And I wrote this paper for one of Clifton Emmerheiser's many watchmen's teaching letters. As a defense of Herodotus, as a historian, and, and to show the necessity of understanding the Greek classics, how that's necessary to our understanding of the Bible. You can't understand any book taken totally out of its historical and cultural context. There is no way. First, I'm going to read a whole bunch of inscriptions. These inscriptions are from a book that's also come to be a very old friend. Ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. The version I have is the third edition. It was published in 1969. It was edited by James B. Pritchard. I've referred to it very often in my programs. The first edition of it was printed in 1950. And I'm going to read the first few paragraphs of the introduction. And this is when um, you could still find academics who cared about the Bible. And, and, and some of these did. Now, now these aren't, you know, this is um, a multi-author volume, right? That This book is, is the work of maybe two dozen people, two dozen scholars spread across the country. Some of them are Jews. Most of them are Saxons or, or um, white Europeans. That's just the way it is in academia today. There's no way around that. But these ancient Assyrian inscriptions and Sumerian inscriptions and Egyptian inscriptions, they are, except for those certain buzzwords, like, like the word Jew itself, right, where, where we know it should be translated Judah or Judean. Well, when these things are translated, when these ancient inscriptions are translated, they get a whole lot of academic scrutiny. And, and we don't see that scrutiny. I've seen some of the academic journals and, and the, um, what, where these translations are first published. And, and there's all sorts of um, debate among the scholars that translate these, that these um, ancient languages before the best ideas won out, and, and they're, they're published for the general academic community. I, I mean, the average person isn't going to buy 
purchase books like this and read them, right? Books like this are published for the wider academic community so that people who don't know how to read Sumerian cuneiform, like Zechariah Sitchin, he claims to know, but he really doesn't, so that people that don't know how to read these things can still investigate what they say and, and, and undertake their historical research without understanding the actual ancient Akkadian or Sumerian languages, which I've seen some of these tablets. I've seen some of these tablets at the um, University of Pennsylvania Museum, and, and after seeing them in pictures for years and then visiting the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology, I was amazed at how small they are. Yet you see a tablet with all these letters on it crammed all together, and, and they crammed as many letters into a square inch or a square foot as possible. And, and you see a picture of the tablet in, in, in an archaeology magazine, and, and you envision it as some large tablet, maybe a couple of feet wide, a couple of feet high. And, and then I went to the UPenn Museum and actually saw some of these things. And some of them were about the size of the pack, a pack of cigarettes and, and had an entire story written on them. It's that they are actually pretty amazing. Now, they're all beat, beaten and rough around the edges, and I'm sure at one time they were nice and rectangular and smooth. But um, it's amazing how many words they, they squeeze together in a very tight space. And because of that, how difficult it is to read them today when you're not acquainted with the language. But these tablets have, for the most part, been deciphered. Most of them were translated. I mean, a lot of them have been retranslated, and some of the translations have been improved. But most of these tablets were translated by British and German scholars and French scholars in, in the 19th century. I'm going to start off with ancient Near Eastern texts with the introduction. And from probably about a dozen different inscriptions to show the historicity of the deportations of the ancient Israelites and, 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 well, the Judahites, most of them were deported later, but so that we can see that the, the Bible is an actual historical record. And it can be proven to be very accurate wherever we dig up and fairly examine archaeological evidence. And this book is an important tool to us in order to do that. Because without books like this, well, we have these um, inscriptions translated in a thousand different archaeology journals that are quite expensive and that are quite obscure and, and difficult to find and to locate and to purchase once they're found. Because they were printed for a very narrow audience of perhaps a couple of hundred advanced archaeology students and professors, or, or a seriologist, or, or whatever field in question. So this is from the introduction of, of James B. Pritchard's Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament. The Ancient Near East, until about a century ago, and this is the original introduction, so that century ago is 1850, right? And that's the time that Sir Henry Layard, the famous British archaeologist, was working to uncover the great ancient cities of Mesopotamia. The ancient Near East, until about a century ago, had as its chief witness the text of the Hebrew Bible. Relatively 
insignificant was the evidence recovered from sources outside the Bible at that time in 1850, right? That which had been found had not been sufficiently understood to serve as a reliable historical source. Let me say that it was the British Empire that paved the way for British archaeologists and, and for the Germans and, and French. Through explorations and excavations carried on within the last century in Egypt, Mesopotamia, Asia Minor, and Syria, a wealth of new information has become available. This new light from extra-biblical texts has served not only to enlarge immeasurably the horizon for a knowledge of the ancient Near East, but it has also sharpened considerably the understanding of the content of the Bible itself. Not infrequently has an interest in biblical history and literature led those who pursued it into fields of discovery which have had far-reaching significance for humanistic studies in general. Hitherto unknown languages with considerable literatures have been the byproducts of activity begun by those interested primarily in biblical research. One of those languages, of course, was Sumerian, and, and we have flood stories and creation stories, many of them very similar to what we see in the Bible, some of them quite different, all throughout. Um, this book that, that were um, translated from ancient Sumerian texts, that's just one example, right? So, so that's the byproduct that he's talking about that we've gained through people interested in archaeology in the Middle East and, and the Near East for, re, for the purpose of researching and understanding their Bibles. That's what got people into this study. Hitherto unknown languages with considerable literatures have been the byproducts of activity begun by those interested primarily in biblical research. The results of the labor of those whose interests led them beyond the narrower confines have now become the tools of all biblical scholars. The purpose of this work is to make available to students of the ancient Near East, serious students of the Old Testament, we believe are necessarily such. In other words, this, this academic... It is stating that to be a student, if you're going to be serious about the Bible, you would better be serious about ancient history. The most important extra-biblical texts and translations which represent the best understanding which present-day scholarship has achieved. Many of the relevant texts have been hitherto accessible only in obscure and highly technical journals. Some have been circulated widely in translations which represent a stage of understanding now happily superseded by more thorough study. Yet other texts included here have not hitherto been published in translation into a modern language. This is not the first attempt of its kind. Extra-biblical sources have long been considered important for an understanding of the Hebrew Bible. Almost three centuries ago, John Spencer, master of Corpus Christi College in Cambridge, that would be close to... 1650, sought to interpret the ritual laws of the Hebrews in the light of the relevant material from Egypt, Greece, and Rome. As early as 1714, Hadrian Reland of, the Utrecht, of, of Utrecht, that that's a Dutch city, I believe, published his monumental work on Palestinian geography, in which he recognized the importance of the monuments, meaning the inscriptions, for biblical study. 
H. Robertson Smith and Julius Wellhausen, in the later part of the 19th century, found in the literature of Arabia a point of vantage for a better understanding of biblical customs and institutions. The importance of Assyriology for biblical studies, and let me see that even the Arab language would help us know some of the, some of the idioms. The importance of Assyriology for biblical studies was widely heralded through the spectacular announcements of George Smith in a paper read before the Society of Biblical Archaeology on December 3, 1872, Smith gave translations from the Assyrian account of the flood and predicted that we may expect many other discoveries throwing light on these ancient periods. Two years later, he described the fragments of an extra-biblical account of creation in a letter to the London Daily Telegraph. These sensational announcements served to create interest among biblical scholars in the science of Assyriology, as well as to elicit popular support for further excavation and research. At about the same time that England was becoming aware of the significance of cuneiform studies, Eberhard Schrader published in his, I'm going to destroy this, Die Kylen Schriften und das Alt Testament, something and, and the Old Testament, right? a work which enjoyed the popularity of his successive editions in German and in English translation. Schrader's arrangement of the relevant cuneiform material was in the form of a commentary upon the canonical books. Later, H. Winkler published a textbook of the cuneiform inscriptions illustrating the biblical material. This appeared in three editions. And they don't translate the, the name of Eberhard Schrader's book for me, but it's probably something to do with inscriptions, the inscriptions, the ancient inscriptions in the Old Testament or something along those lines, right? I'm going to... Um, that, that's, there's a lot more to the introduction, but I, I just wanted to read enough to show how early it was that these inscriptions became important to students of the Bible. How early it was that people started to investigate them. That was the foundation for British Israel. That was the beginning of the realization of British Bible scholars that the Saxon people, and, and they didn't get it all right, but they had large chunks of it right, that the Saxon people were indeed descended from the Saka of the East, the ancient East, that the Germanic peoples came from the East, and once the Assyrian inscriptions are understood, men like John Wilson and Edward Hine and others who made mistakes concerning the Jewish half of the equation realized that the Saxons, the Saka, the Scythians, they were the dispersion of the children of Israel of the Old Testament. That's not very hard to put together. All you have to do is understand that the Assyrians and the Greeks who, who recorded these things, they did know what the hell they were talking about. There's something um, in archaeology that and anybody who, with casual observance, simply looks at the names and, and who's working in, in the field of archaeology would understand 
Then in the 18th and 19th and, and 20th century, early 20th centuries, all of these people who published the most scholarly archaeology works were all Germans, Christian Germans, and Englishmen, Christian Englishmen, and Frenchmen. There were, there were quite a few. The man that, that um, I, I'm sorry, I forget his name offhand, but the man who deciphered the Rosetta Stone, that's a famous move um, there, right? He was a Frenchman. I think Henry Layard may have been a Frenchman. I'm not positive. He may have been a Brit. Regardless, today, and, and especially since the um, success, well, well, the relative success of the Jewish incursion into Palestine, all of those archaeologists are Jews now. You open up a, pay, a, a copy of the, um, a, a journal I used to like at one time, kind of, what, which is... Um, published by the Oriental Institute. It, it's an archaeology journal, the, the Ancient Near Eastern, Near Eastern Archaeology. Near Eastern Archaeology is the title of it. It's Jew, wall-to-wall Jews. I, I would bet five out of every six articles are written by Jews. You open up a copy of Biblical Archaeology Review, and, and it's at least 60 70% Jewish. Archaeology Odyssey, and another... Um, publication from the same people is a majority of Jewish archaeologists. It's incredible. A, a Jew wants a job. I, used, I like to say a Jew wants a job. He starts a charity. Well, or maybe I should say a Jew wants a job. He starts a charity or he becomes an archaeologist. That wasn't so in the early 1900s. They were all British and American scholars out there digging up the earth. Today, you can't be British and American and go put a shovel in the ground in Palestine. Yet you'll be in an Israeli jail in Tel Aviv in two seconds flat. That they make sure they filter everything that comes out of there. And, and they've done that with, with zeal since the 1940s or 50s. I'm going to read from an inscription. And this isn't related to the discussion tonight. I just want to show, you know, what we, a lot of people look at these Genesis accounts and, and, and they think this, this is incredible. How could anybody rule for so long? How could a man live for a thousand years? Yeah, we all have those questions, right? But the texts say what they say. This is from um, an ancient... Babylonian inscription, it, it's, it's in a section of, of this work called Texts from the Beginnings to the First Dynasty of Babylon. This is a text from pre-dynastic Babylon, according to this. It's, it's a Sumerian text. It seems to be part of what's called the Sargon Chronicle, Sargon of Agade who was not Cain, by the way, as some British Israel people insist. That's ridiculous. And I'm going to read this just so that we could understand that um, in ancient Mesopotamia, the Bible, as we know it, was not alone in, in such claims, right? And this is only a section of what's called the Sumerian King List, which is actually a pretty famous inscription. There are five cities. Eight kings ruled over them. 
for 241,000 years. Then the flood swept over the earth. Well, eight kings, there were eight patriots. Eight leading patriarchs from Adam to Noah. One may say that's a coincidence. I, I, I tend to think that different branches of our race had the same stories, and, and some of the branches of our race handed down. It had to be. If they didn't have similarities, then I would wonder, well, well, if they're all related, why don't these stories have similarities? Of course they have similarities. Different branches of our race all passed down their, their ancient histories verbally, and some of those branches elaborated on those stories more than others. And, and that's why they're myths. Myth, the Greek muthus just means it, it describes a story transmitted by word of mouth. That's what a, real, that, that's what a, a myth really is, right? It's not necessarily something bad. It's just the way they translated their stories. And after the flood had swept over the earth. And when kingship was lowered again from heaven, kingship was first in Kish. Now, now we know in, in Hebrew that the vowels are, are negotiable. There are no real vowels in Hebrew. There are some um, consonantal vowel letters, but there are no true vowels in the Hebrew language. Well, Kish could easily be Cush. It could easily be the Cush of Nimrod. Nimrod was a son of Cush in Genesis 10. So here we have two agreements with the Hebrew Scripture, that there were eight kings who ruled over the cities of, of, of the Oikumene, right, the world, before the flood, the world meaning the area where the children of Adam were, because the Sumerians certainly were children of Adam. And then... There was a flood, and then kingship first came to Kish, or Cush. So, so we see agreement. Now, now, there's a list of kings that succeed the flood, that follow the flood, and some of them rule for 840 years, and 720, and 1560, and 660, and 900, and I'm not going to say all their names, but, but um, it, it goes down, it drops gradually to... Um, 140 years and 305 years and, and, and 629 years. And it reads very much like the Hebrew Bible where the ages of the patriarchs dropped sharply after the flood. So, so to me, this, this doesn't, a lot of people would say, oh, that disproves the Bible. See that? Now we know the Bible is just a copy of that. Well, well that's just bullshit, right? Because this, is a different branch of the same race, and I would expect them to have similar stories about their origins. If they did not have a similar story about their origins, then I would think, well, maybe somebody's telling a tale, right? Well, well this might be a tale, but it's what our ancestors, at least two different branches of our ancestors, and the Greeks had a flood story, the Greeks believed that Deucalion was the only man that survived through a great deluge. And from him did all the Greek races spring. And that's just a repeat and an elaboration on the Hebrew Bible story. To me, these things, you know, to me, the historic portion of the Bible starts at Genesis chapter 10. But I don't dismiss 
those first nine chapters. There's important messages and lessons for us in those first nine chapters. The beginning of our race, the circumstances of the beginning of our race, the dangers that our race faced at its early inception and, and how it was almost destroyed totally because it transgressed God's law of kind after kind, even from a totally well, well, non-Christian identity viewpoint, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in Genesis if it's looked at objectively. And once one understands that this is our race, and certainly not any Jews. Okay, so that's, you know, just one... Parallel, demonstrating why it's under, important to understand this ancient literature. And I thought I'd cover that real quick. It's not part of the scene tonight. The scene tonight are the historical texts of the Assyrians, which show that the children of Israel and the children of Judah were indeed mighty kingdoms at one time. They were kingdoms of substance at the time that the Assyrians invaded them, just like the Bible describes. They were all taken away, just like the Bible describes. This is foundational knowledge that all Bible students and especially Christian identists, should have. This is from an inscription of Shalmanasar. We have many inscriptions of Shalmanasar. Shalmanasar III, and he lived, he reigned as king over the Assyrians, as emperor, really, because Assyria was an empire already, from 858 to 824 B.C. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. I don't have any inscriptions of Shalmanasar III. I should, but I didn't include them. I started with um, Tiglath-Pileser III. He ruled as king over Assyria from 744 to 727 B.C. It's about 742 B.C. when the Assyrians first go into the land of Israel and they receive tribute. It's about 721 B.C. that the, that the Israelites, rebelling against Assyria, Samaria is leveled, and many of the Israelites were taken away, captive, and resettled in the cities of the Medes. The last excursion in Israel is about 676 B.C. by the Assyrians under Esar Hadan. These are the words as inscribed on this ancient tablet of Tiglath-Pileser III, describing his campaigns against Syria and Palestine. It's from a building inscription on clay preserved in various copies. It was first published by George Rawlinson 
or, or Henry Rawlinson. I'm sorry, I'm really not sure which Rawlinson he means. In volume two, George and Henry Rawlinson were both brothers and great scholars. In volume two, plate 67, the translation is from Donald Luckenbill, who was a famous Assyriologist of the 1920s and 30s. I installed Itty Billy as Warden of Marches, meaning frontiers, on the border of Musur, in all the countries which, and is an ellipsis, I received the tribute of Kushtashbi of Kamajin. That's, that's a famous city by the Black Sea that's well known to the Greeks. Uruk of Q, Sibidi Bel of Byblos, that, that's the famous Phoenician city on the coast of Syria. Emil of Hamath, Panamu of Samal. Not all of these names are easily recognizable. Terhuara of Gumgum. Sulumal of Militin, which may be Militus, Usermi of Tabal. Tubal was a land in um, far northern Anatolia by the Caucasus Mountains at this time. The, the people of Tubal later migrated through the Caucasus into Russia. Ushidi of Tuna, Urbala of Tuhana, Tuhami of Ishtunda. Matanbel of Arvad, that's the famous city, Arvad, on the Phoenician coast. We know it from the Bible. Sanipu of Bit Amman, that means the house of Amman. The Ammonites, the Canaanites, a part of the Canaanites on the other side of the Jordan that we know from the Bible. Salamanu of Moab. Mitinti of Ashkelon. Jehoahaz of Judah. Kashmalaku of Edom, Muzri, and Hano of Gaza. Now, after the divided kingdom, it seems to me, and, and we're not really told this in the Bible, but it can be ascertained. Solomon had given um, 20 cities in Palestine to Hiram, the king of Tyre. Hiram was the king of Tyre, meaning only the island city, which was really outside of the bounds of the nation of Israel. I demonstrated it. It could be told from the Bible and from the Septuagint especially, and from many other ancient historical sources, that the Tyrians were actually part of the children of Israel. When Solomon gave those 20 cities to Sidon, we don't see of Sidon and Galilee to Hiram we don't see much about it anymore in the Bible because the kingdom's divided and the biblical life of Israel rotates around, it, it, around Samaria, which was the capital of Ephraim, and it's where the kings of Israel usually sat. We see descriptions in Kings and Chronicles where sometimes those kings lost land in northern Israel to their neighbors, and sometimes they gained it back. But we see from this inscription that there was more fragmentation than that, that many of the cities that belonged to the children of Israel in the judges period and in the period of David and Solomon and, and some of the subsequent kings were often ruled by 
separate kings, by separate rulers. There was a lot of fragmentation in Israel, and, and these inscriptions very often display that. The peoples are often still Israelites, as they are in the case of the Tyrians. The Sidonians were by this time mostly Israelites, although there were always Canaanites in Sidon, according to the Bible, that were enslaved by the Israelites. So the picture that we see from some of these inscriptions is just the way the Greek and, and the rest of the world is at this time, that, that cities had kings or, or local rulers, and, and from the outside, even if that man was a local ruler, he may have been seen as a king by the ruler of a foreign nation, even though he may have been under another king. So, so it's, we really have to open our mind up to these things that the ancient world didn't have the, the solid geographical lines that we have today with, with um, that, you know, it, it, it was a lot more fluid back then. And, and the Bible shows that in many places, right? So here we have the, the, the first inscription, the, the first mention of Judah in an Assyrian inscription, and, and that's Tiglath Pileser III. And I'll move on to, to another section of the same analytic records on page 283 of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. And this begins with a few ellipses because the texts are broken up, right? The town of Hatarika, as far as the mountain Sawa, Byblos, and then an ellipsis, Samira, Arka, Zemara, ellipsis, Uznu, Sianu, Riraba, Risisu, the town's ellipsis of the upper sea, I brought under my rule, this is Tiglath Pileser III, we know this king, that this king of Assyria very well from the Bible, right? He's also called Pul in the Bible, P-U-L. Six officers of mine I installed as governors over them. The town of Rashpuna, which is situated at the coast of the Upper Sea. The town's ellipsis. Gaza, Abilaka, which are adjacent to Israel. Now, in, this, um, in these inscriptions, Israel is translated, but the Assyrian words are bit humria. Last night on, on the program, I explained how, how the humri or the Khumri, K-H-U-M-R-I, or the people that the Greeks called the Kimaroi. Bit Humria is the name, the house of Amri, which was one of their more famous kings after the divided kingdom, is what the Assyrians called the children of Israel throughout the inscriptions. And this name, Bit Humria, is identified with cities that we know belong to the Israelites of the Old Testament which are adjacent to Bit-Humria and the wide land of Naphtali in its entire extent. I united with Assyria. Officers of mine I, I installed as governors upon them. And we know from the Bible that this happened about 721 B.C. in the reign of, of this same well, well, I'm sorry, about 742 B.C. in the reign of the same Tiglath Pileser when he put these areas under tribute. And it tells us that right in the scripture. 
the same inscription, a few paragraphs down, and we have some ellipses again. Let me see if I can start this in a better place. As to Hanno of Gaza, who fled before my army and ran away to Egypt, I conquered the town of Gaza, his personal property, his images, and I placed the images of my gods and my royal image in his own palace and declared them to be thenceforward the gods of their country. I imposed upon them tribute. As for Menahem, I overwhelmed him like a snowstorm, and he fled like a bird alone. And then there's an ellipsis and there's some words in, in parentheses which are provided by the translators that says, and bound to my feet. I'm not sure about that. And there's a question mark in, in the text. Now where the text begins again. I return him to his palace and impose tribute upon him, gold, silver, linen garments with multicolored trimmings. Great. I received from him Israel, meaning Omri land, it's Bit Humria, all its inhabitants and their possessions I led to Assyria. They overthrew their king Pekah, Pekah being one of the kings listed in, in, in the Chronicles and the Books of Kings. And I placed Hosea, who was actually the last king in Israel, as king over them. I received from them ten talents of gold, 1,000 talents of silver is their tribute, and brought them to Assyria. As for Samsi, queen of Arabia, I killed 1,100 inhabitants, 30,000 camels, 20,000 heads of cattle, and the list goes on. So we see that the stories in the Bible about this ancient kingdom of Israel and how it met its end, they're real. We dug these inscriptions out of the ground. 3,000 years after the um, biblical texts were written, and we see that they say the same thing, basically, about this, the end of this ancient kingdom that the Bible tells us. This is from Sargon II. He ruled over Assyria from 721 to 705 B.C. These are when the major deportations began. Let me say that there were many other deportations of the Israelites. The Reubenites had already been taken away, as it describes in the books of Kings and Chronicles. The, the, um, the people in Transjordania, right, uh, many of the cities, not all of them, but many of the cities of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh that lived on the other side of the Jordan had already been taken away by the Assyrians, as the Bible explains. However, we don't have record of that in the Assyrian inscriptions. Does that mean that it didn't happen? Well, of course it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. We just haven't found all of the Assyrian inscriptions. I mean, these inscriptions laid under the desert, the ground, in piles that collected dust and eventually became mounds after these cities were destroyed. For, for um, 
for, for damn close to 2,500 years. So we can't expect to find a complete account, right? But the, the accounts that we have are more than sufficient to lead us to believe that all of the accounts of the deportations in the Bible are true, that they shouldn't be doubted. Because if six out of ten of them have been corroborated, there's no reason to doubt the other four. There's no reason to doubt the other four in the first place. It's incredible to me that we have something called a school of biblical minimalists. And the Jews pull all kinds of tricks to distract us from the truth. They really do. There's no end to Jewish tricks. And the school of biblical minimalists is one of them. These guys actually claim to be scholars and academics. And they actually try to purport that Ezra and Nehemiah basically invented the Bible in the 5th century B.C. in order to unify a, a, a ragtag collection of Canaanites in, in ancient Palestine. That's what they claim. They've written books, and, and they make money on this garbage. And, and all you have to do is open up these ancient Assyrian inscriptions and know that the school of biblical minimalists, it's not worth me mentioning any of their names, although I know a few of them. I don't know them personally. I just know their names, right? All you had to do was open these books of ancient inscriptions to know that these guys are clowns. They're just high-paid clowns. They're $100,000 a year clowns, right? But they're still clowns. This is from Sargon II, the fall of Samaria. He ruled over Assyria from 721 to 705 B.C., Property of Sargon, etc. He probably had several titles. King of Assyria, etc. Of course, he ruled over several kingdoms. Conqueror of Samaria, and the etc. is supplied by the translator, right? Conqueror of Samaria, and of the entire country of Israel, Bit-Humri, who despoiled Ashdod and Shuti, who taught the Greeks who live on the islands in the sea, who caught, I'm sorry, the Greeks who live on the islands in the sea like fish, who exterminated Casku, Altabali, and Kalikia. Now, now here is part of, um, that. this helps me substantiate why I insist that the Humri of the Assyrian inscriptions are really Cumri, right? Because in Assyrian, Kalikia is Hilaku. It begins with the letter H. In Greek, it, it's Kalikia. It begins with the letter K. And that's because the Akkadian language was very guttural, and that H sound was pronounced like a K, like a K-H. Who exterminated Kasku, Altabali, and Kalikia. Who chased away Midas, king of Musku. You've heard the famous King Midas. Well, well that name was, belonged to several kings. Uh, of um, Phrygia, and, and in, this sense, in this case, this is a different Midas. This is the king of Musku, who defeated Musur. Musku is Moski. It, it's um, Moski in scripture. They're Jepesites that lived along the Black Sea, and it is where, um, I believe, the Slavs who later lived around Moscow, Moscow dwelt, because those people Tubal and Moski disappeared from Greek records by the time of Strabo, and, and it seems that they were brought 
as some of the ancient Greek writers describe, that they were brought through the Caucasus Mountains along with the Scythians, who took many of the Japhethites in those regions as slaves and brought them up through the Caucasus Mountains with them. It, it's, the history is very thin, but, but it, can be, it, it can be put together. King of Moscow, who defeated Musur in Rapihu, who declared Hanno king of Gaza as booty, meaning he took off Gaza, and, and Gaza was a portion of the ancient lands of Dan and Simeon, who subdued the seven kings of the country, Yah, on the district of Cyprus. And we could turn to Ezekiel chapter 27 and other portions of Scripture, especially in the Septuagint, to see that it was the Israelites who inhabited Cyprus at this time, who dwell on an island in the sea at a distance of a seven days' journey. So there we have it. This is the inscription which substantiates the fact that the Samaria, the city of Ephraim, the capital of ancient Israel, was captured by the Assyrians. Later on in the same inscription of Sargon II, at the beginning of my royal rule, I, and there's an ellipsis, the town of Samarians, of the Samarians, I besieged, conquered, this two lines missing, for the God who let me achieve this, my triumph, I led away as prisoners 27,290 inhabitants of it. From among them, 50 chariots for my royal corps. In, in other words, he took their army equipment, right? The town I rebuilt better than it was before and settled therein people from countries which I myself had conquered. I placed an officer of mine as governor over them and imposed upon them tribute as is customary for Assyrian citizens. So there we have it. an inscription of Sargon II, which very much matches the biblical story and tells us how many people of Samaria were taken and relocated by the Assyrians. And just as the Bible tells us, it tells us that the Assyrians took people from other lands in the Assyrian Empire that they had conquered and brought them into Samaria so that they could live in Samaria. That is how the Assyrians controlled people. Later on in the same inscription, I besieged and conquered Samaria, led away booty 27,290 inhabitants of it. I formed from among them a contingent of 50 chariots and made remaining inhabitants assume their social positions. I installed over them an officer of mine and imposed upon them the tribute of the former king. Hanno, king of Gaza, and also C.B., a Turton of Egypt, that's some sort of title, right? Set out from Rapifu against me to deliver a decisive battle. I defeated them. And of course, this is part of a much larger inscription. Later on, in the next paragraph, Yamani from Ashdod, and is that popular arm? Hebrew form of name again, beginning in I-A. The, the King James would probably write Jehomani when they saw that. Yamani from Ashdod, afraid of my armed force, 
left his wife, children, and fled to the frontier, which belongs to Maluha, and hid, hid there like a thief. I installed an officer of mine as governor over his entire large country and its prosperous inhabitants. This is Ashdod, the famous city on the coast of Palestine. Aggrandizing again the territory belonging to Asher, the king of the gods. The terror-inspiring glamour of Asher, my lord, empowered, however, the king of Maluha and threw him, meaning Yamani, in fetters on hands and feet and sent him to me to Assyria. I conquered and sacked the towns of Shinutu and Samaria and all Israel, which is Omri land, or bit Humria, the house of Omri. I caught like a fish the Greek Ionians who live on the islands amidst the Western Sea. Here I have a side note. What we, what we know that the, the Hittites were cursed in the Bible. Well, this, this might be termed two seed line in Assyrian inscriptions, right? I won't call it that, but I probably could get away with it. Yobidi from Hamas, a commoner without claim to the throne, a cursed Hittite, schemed to become the king of Hamas, induced the cities, Arvad, Samira, Damascus, and Samaria to desert me, made them collaborate, and fitted out an army. So, so we see that the, the um, Sargon II calls this man a cursed Hittite, and, and there's another reference to that further on I might get to. Here's the other reference right here. It's on um, page 286, ancient Near Eastern texts. Azori, king of Ashdod, had schemed not to deliver tribute anymore and sent messages full of hostilities against Assyria to the kings living in his neighborhood. On account of the misdeed which he thus committed, I abolished his rule over the inhabitants of his country and made Ahimidi his younger brother king over them. But these Hittites, always planning treachery, hated his reign, and elevated to rule over them a Greek, who, without claim to the throne, knew, just as they themselves, no respect for authority. So we see again that the Hittites are considered to be a treacherous people. Today they're called Jews. The Jews of today are basically the Canaanites, Edomites of the Old Testament. There's no doubt. Back to the deportations. This is an inscription of Sennacherib, a famous name for the Bible. He ruled over Assyria from 704 until 681 BC. He followed Sargon II, and he was followed by Esar Hadan. As to all the kings of Amuru, that's the land of the Amorites. Menahem from Samis Maruna. Tabulu from Sidon, Abdelidi from Arvad, Urumilki from Byblos, Metinti from Ashdod. And, and the problem with this text is that the Assyrians knew that the people of the deserts were Amorites, and they basically considered all the Syrians to be Amorites, but that's not the, that does not mean they were Amorites racially. It's the Assyrian perspective. Ahiramu from Edom, of course, we know he's not an Amorite. 
from a biblical, from a Israelite Hebrew perspective. Kamusanad be from Moab. They brought sumptuous gifts and fourfold their heavy tower to Tamar to presents to me and kissed my feet. I don't think that the translator understood what Tamar to was, so he, he did not translate the word. Sidkia, however, king of Ashkelon, who did not bow to my yoke, I deported and sent to Assyria. His family gods himself, his wife, his children, and his brothers. His family gods. Himself, his wife, his children, his brothers, all the male descendants of his family. I set Sharuludari, son of Rukibtu, their former king over the inhabitants of Ashkelon, and imposed upon him the payment of tribute. Another inscription of Sennacherib's, and this is a famous one. This inscription verifies what we see in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 3. And I will read that, where it says, Now in the 14th year of Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them? We see that repeated again in Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, it says, in Isaiah 36.1, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came in against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. Here we have in this inscription of Sennacherib, and this is from the Oriental Institute, Prism of Sennacherib, that's what the inscription's called, which contains, as does the so-called Taylor Prism, the final edition of the Annals of Sennacherib. So this is on two inscriptions. It's on this Oriental Institute Prism of Sennacherib's, and it's on the, the prism called the Taylor Prism, right? And here, and, and I'm passing, in, I'm skipping about four paragraphs, one of them I just read part of. As to Hezekiah, the Judahite, of course the translator has Jew here, right? But we know that's not true. He did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams brought near to the walls, combined with the attack by foot soldiers using mines, breaches, as well as sapper work. So we see that Judah must have been a great kingdom. Forty-six fenced cities, and every one of them required military tools and implements in order to breach. So, so that's no small city-state, right? That, that's a, that's a, a considerable kingdom. Most of these places that the Assyrians are, are conquering throughout Mesopotamia and Anatolia and Syria and, and the, um, the lands to the south, they're just city-states. And Judah's here, inclusive of Jerusalem, which was not taken by the Assyrians, as we shall see, 
And not only Jerusalem, but 46 fenced cities. Judah is the kingdom which we read about in the Bible. There is no doubt. It's not a little outpost of Jews on a hilltop in Jerusalem. <laughs> it's a great kingdom with many walled cities, things that Jews don't build, right? I drove out of them 200,150 people. So we see in this one excursion where, where, where Sennacherib took all of the walled cities of Judah, he captured and took out of them 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle, beyond counting, and considered them booty. Himself, meaning Hezekiah. Now, now this is political spin. This is political spin to the ultimate, right? Political spin is very old. It, it, it's nothing that started with Bill Clinton or Richard Nixon. It's been around for thousands and thousands of years, right? In the Bible, we see that um, the angel of, of God destroyed in, in whatever form we want to imagine that took, right? It's not important to me. The angel of Yahweh destroyed 180,000 of Sennacherib's troops, and Sennacherib himself left in D.C. Well, that's not the way Sennacherib portrays it here. And we could imagine that if he took 200,150 200, people hostage, that now we know from the, biblical, from the biblical account that Jerusalem was under an extended siege, right? So all this didn't happen in one day. This is a chronicle, and we have to understand, and when we put this together with the biblical account, that the 46 cent cities and the 200,000 captives were taken off to Assyria long before the siege on Jerusalem ended, which was an extended siege. And, and the people of Jerusalem actually built that they, that they extended and, and revamped what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel, which is how they got water into the city to withstand this extended siege. And they piled up food and everything they could because they knew the Assyrians were coming. They saw their 46 fenced cities fall. And Jerusalem was not to be taken. God had promised that it wouldn't be. In the Bible, we see that Sennacherib left in defeat. That is not how Sennacherib is going to portray it on his inscriptions. He's going to spin it. And, 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 and there's, many, <laughs> there's many examples of this in Egyptian inscriptions and, and elsewhere. But here's the, way has a, here's the way Sennacherib has it. Himself, meaning Hezekiah, I made a prisoner. In Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were leaving his city's gates. His towns, which I plundered, I took away from his country and gave them over to Metinti, the king of Ashdod, Paddy, the king of Ekron, and Silabil, the king of Gaza. In other words, he split up Judah's territory amongst surrounding kings who were... Um, who were under tribute to him and, and 
That way he could keep their allegiance also. Thus I reduced his country. But I still increased the tribute and the Katru presence due to me as his overlord, which I imposed later upon him, beyond the former tribute to be delivered annually. Hezekiah himself, whom the terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship had overwhelmed, and whose irregular and elite troops, which he had brought into Jerusalem, his royal residence, in order to strengthen it, had deserted him, did send me later to Nineveh, my lordly city, together with 30 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver, precious stones, antimony, large cuts of red stone, pouches inlaid with ivory, chairs inlaid with ivory, elephant hides, ebony wood, boxwood, and all kinds of valuable treasures. His own daughters, concubines, male and female musicians, in order to deliver the tribute and to do obeisance as a slave, he sent his personal messenger. So there we have it. We have the biblical version, which we see in Scripture, where, where Sennacherib left in disgrace, and, and then we have Sennacherib's version, which is um, probably a lot of political spin. The Bible says that Sennacherib was eventually killed by the sword by his own sons. And Esar Hadan, his son, reigned in his stead. Okay, I have another inscription of Senate Cherubs here. I, I don't know how important it is, but I'm going to read it. Or perhaps this is S.R. Hadan. No, this one's Senate Cherub, and the next one's S.R. Hadan. It's not so easy to tell in this book all the time. I'm sorry. I conquered Egypt, Paturian Nubia. Its king, Terhaka, I wounded five times with arrow shots and ruled over his entire country. I carried away much booty, all the kings from the islands amidst the sea, from the country Yadana, which is Cyprus, Yadanana, as far as Tarsisi, that's Tarshish. Bowed to my feet, and I received heavy tribute from them. In the, um, a lot of these places, if, if we read Josephus, Cyprus was under tribute to ancient Tyre. It belonged to the Tyrians, as Josephus attests, at the time leading up to the Assyrian invasions of Israel. Carthage and other places in the Mediterranean were also under tribute to the Tyrians. So I would think, I mean, I can't prove it, but, but it becomes evident later in Persian history when Tyre is under tribute to the Persians that they can also, that, that Tyre had a modicum of control and allegiance from the Carthaginians. 
and, and I'll get into that a little later here, I think, with, with um, the, the Greek invasions of, I'm sorry, the Persian invasions of Greece, where when Persia invaded Greece, there were more Greeks in Italy and Sicily at the time than there were in Greece. And the Persians had the, um, the Carthaginians invade Sicily at the same time that they invaded Greece. And that was a very strategic move because it prevented the Sicilians, who were all, almost all Greek at the time, to, it, it prevented them from helping their Greek kinsmen in Greece when the Persians invaded Greece. And it's clear from that history that Tyre did have a modicum of control over the ancient Tyrian Phoenician colonies of the Mediterranean. Now, now this inscription to me indicates that since the Assyrians had become lords over Tyre, that they had, that they could extend control into the Mediterranean politically through the Tyrians. However, I don't think that Assyria ever had a presence in Tarshish or, or in those faraway places. And, and there's no record that they did. In the book of Ezra, we see that um, it recorded that Esar Hadan is still active in Palestine up until 676 BC, and this inscription basically substantiates that. This is from a prism published by George Rawlinson, or, or perhaps Sir Henry Rawlinson, I should say. Recording the Syro-Palestinian campaign of Esar Hadan, who really only ruled over Assyria for about six years. I am Esar Hadan, the conqueror of Sidon, which lies on an island amidst the sea. He who has leveled all its urban buildings, I tore up and cast into the sea its wall and its foundation, destroying completely the very place Sidon was built upon. I caught out of the open sea like a fish, Abdi Milkuti, its king, who had fled before my attack into the high sea. And I cut off his head. I carried away his booty, his piled up possessions in large amounts, to wit, gold, silver, precious stones, elephant hides, ivory, ebony, and boxwood, garments made with multicolored trimmings and linen, all his personal valuables. I drove to Assyria his teeming people, which could not be counted. Also, large and small cattle and donkeys. I then called together and made all the kings of the country, Hattie, the Hittites, the kings of the Hittites, and of the seashore, to do corby work for me by making them erect the walls of another residence and called its name Kar Esarhaddon, which would be the city of Esarhaddon. I settled therein people from the mountain regions and the seashore of the east. Those who belong to me as my share of the booty, I set them officers of mine as governors. Now, this is a very important inscription because a lot of, um, I don't want to call them pretend scholars. Well, I should. A lot of scholars, when they want to identify who the Phoenicians were, they turn to Herodotus. Now, Herodotus wrote in like 450 to 430 B.C., and they turn right to Herodotus, to the first book and the first chapter of his histories, where Herodotus says, according to the Persians, best informed in history, the Phoenicians began the quarrel, 
He's going way back in time talking about the quarrel between the Persians and the Greeks, right? This people who had formerly dwelt on the shores of the Erythrian Sea, meaning the Red Sea, having migrated to the Mediterranean and settled in parts which they now inhabit, began at once, they say, to adventure on long voyages. Well, Herodotus got this information, and he explains it later in his histories, because he visited Tyre and Sidon. And the people there told him that they came from the Red Sea. And that's nice. So Herodotus just imagined, since he was talking to people that the Greeks considered to be Phoenicians in Tyre and Sudan, Herodotus imagined that the Phoenicians came from the Red Sea. And Azillion scholars have copied that. Well, the Bible proves to us that the Phoenicians of the golden age of Phoenicia are actually Israelites. And there's no doubt, once we understand the Bible and the Septuagint, and once we believe the Bible as it, as, as it was written, and there's no reason not to believe it, in those historical texts. Unless you're a Jew and you want to conceal the identity of the Phoenicians, which is what they, they desire to do because it upsets their own false claims of being Israel. Well, here we have in an inscription 230 years before Herodotus wrote, 230 years before Herodotus visited Tyre and Sidon to find that those people were from the Red Sea. Here we have an inscription of Esar Hadan that he took people from the Red Sea and settled them in Sidon. So it seems to me that Herodotus was probably talking to them. No doubt. Not too many people that study the Greek classics read the Assyrian inscriptions. Too bad. Another inscription of Esar Hadan. Abdi Milkati, king of Sidon, without reading out, now this was an installed king, right? And, and a Hittite. Without respect for my position as lord, without listening to my personal orders, threw off the yoke of the god Asher, the, the god of the Assyrians, right? Trusting the heaving sea to protect him. As to Sidon, his fortress town, which lies in the midst of the sea, I leveled it as if an Ababu storm had passed over it. Its walls and foundations I tore out and threw them into the sea, destroying thus its emplacement completely. I caught Abdi Milkut, its king, who fled before my attack into the sea upon an oracle command of Asher, my lord, his god is his lord, like a fish on high sea and cut off his head. I carried off his booty, his wife, his children, the personnel of his palace, gold, silver, other valuables, precious stones, garments made of multicolored trimmings and linen, elephant hides, ivory, ebony, boxwood, whatever precious objects there were in his palace and in great quantities. I led to Assyria, his teeming subjects, which could not be counted, and large and small cattle and donkeys in great quantities. There I called together all the kings of the country of the Hatti, meaning the Hittites who dwelt to the north and from the seacoast and made them build a town for me on a new location calling its name Kar Esar Hadan.
I have just a couple of pages left here. And I believe that they're earmarked for later on. And they are. And that's all I have from the Assyrian inscriptions. And I'm sure you're happy about that, right? But there's plenty of Assyrian inscriptions there. Actual archaeological relics that demonstrate that the deportations of the children of Israel and Judah, as we find them in the Bible, are actually historical. And that the existence of these kingdoms really can't be questioned. We have two solid witnesses that these kingdoms existed, the Assyrian inscriptions and our Bibles. And wherever we see their kings mentioned, we see the same names in the same periods that we see in our Bibles. And the same cities. And the population levels are, are very credible as we compare the biblical accounts to the accounts of the numbers of people, the survivors who were carried captive and carried away by the Assyrians. Now for my paper, Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy. As I said, I wrote this for one of Clifton's teaching letters. I think it was teaching letter number 72, which was probably sometime in 2004, if I had to guess. I forget the date. It's on his website, right? The purpose of this expose is to show how, if one is not familiar with secular history, of which much is found in the Greek classics for this period, one will not fully understand Scripture. The Judean nation comprised mostly of bad figs, today called Jews, was not dispersed until 70 A.D. The dispersion of the Jews was in 70 A.D. They are not the people of God. The dispersion of the bad figs, the dispersion of the enemies of God is a subject of prophecy found in Jeremiah chapters 24, 26, and 29. It's affirmed by Christ himself, where he said that his enemies would be taken into all nations for a curse and a reproach, and to be a curse and a reproach, and to be chastised wherever they go in Luke chapter 21. That is the dispersion of the bad figs. The dispersion of the Judeans at 70, after 70 AD, that's the dispersion of the enemies of God, as we see in Luke 21 and Jeremiah 24, 26, and 29. James in chapter 1-1 speaks of the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. James died before 70 AD. He died before the dispersion of the Jews. As Josephus attests, James died in 62 AD. Neither could the Jews already spread abroad claim descent from tribes other than three only, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. And only a tiny fraction of those ever resettled in Judea on their return from Babylon. 42,000 of them. And perhaps a few more. None of these people that James considered to be the 12 tribes scattered abroad were ever called Jews. 
except for his long description of Egypt, found in book two of his histories, out of nine, and some of his other forays into the distant past, Herodotus gave the history of Persia covering the reign of five kings in his writing. Cyrus, Cambyses, Pseudo-Smyrtus, the usurper, Darius, and Xerxes. These kings are the exact same kings which Daniel, our prophet, speaks of in Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. At Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, in the King James, we read Darius the Mede, who at one time I thought was a satrap of Babylon. When I wrote this paper, I followed Swift and Camperet under title Darius. Now I know it's much further studied. I have to amend the paper because since it was written, I have realized and have proven through the records that the word Darius was merely a title used for many kings and lesser rulers. And it was in Daniel 11.1 1, clearly simply a title for Cyrus because the record is clear that Cyrus was the king of Persia as Daniel wrote these last chapters of his prophecy. Daniel 11.2 continues, There shall stand up yet, meaning from the time of Cyrus, and the Septuagint in Daniel 11.1 says Cyrus. It does not say Darius. And Daniel 11.2 says, from the time of Cyrus, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. And so we have Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, Pseudosmyrtus, and Darius, who actually began the war with the Greeks when his army was defeated at the Battle of Marathon. That was an army of Darius. And the fourth shall be far richer than all, and by his strength through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of the Greeks. And Xerxes, Daniel's fourth king, who invaded Greece long after Daniel died, not only invaded Greece, leveling Athens itself, he also incited the Phoenicians of Carthage with their Iberian brethren and others to attack the Greeks of Sicily at the same time. So that was certainly stirring up war against the whole realm of Grecia, or the whole realm of the Greeks. Where Xerxes is defeated, Herodotus, having fulfilled his testimony of this war, ended his histories. I'm going to read this section of, um, of Herodotus, where he's describing the war, the campaigns of um, Xerxes in, in, in Greece. And, and this is Herodotus, Book 7, Section 165. And I'm going to quote from George Rawlinson's translation. They, however, who dwell in Sicily say that Gelo, though he knew that he must serve under the Lacedaemonians, meaning the Spartans, would nevertheless have come to the aid of the Greeks had it not been for Tyrillus, the son of Crinippus, king of who, driven from a city by Pharaoh, the son of Inesidamus, king of Agrigentum, brought into Sicily at this very time an army of 300,000 men, Phoenicians, Libyans, Iberians, Ligurians, the Ligurians, it can be shown, are related to the Etruscans, 
and, and dwelt in, in the coasts between France and, and, and Rome. Hellasicians, Sardinians, and Corsicans, under the command of Hamilcar, the famous Hamilcar, the son of Hanno, king of the Carthaginians. Tyrillus prevailed upon Hamilcar partly as his sworn friend, but more through the zealous aid of Anaxilas, the son of Cretinus, king of Regium, who, by giving his own sons to Hamilcar as hostages, induced him to make the ex- expedition. And Aloxus herein served his own father-in-law, for he was married to a daughter of Tyrillus by the name of Kidite. So as Delo could not give the Greeks any aid, he sent, they say, the sum of money to Delphi. Well, the political history is always a little more complicated. But we see that the Greeks of Sicily and the Greeks of what's called at this time Magna Graecia, Greater Greece, the lower half of what we see is the boot of Italy on our maps. That was Magna Graecia. And there were hundreds of thousands of Greeks there, right? There were more Greeks in Sicily and in Italy at this time, according to historians like Herodotus, than there were in Greece. But they could not come to the aid of the Greeks when the Persians invaded Greece because the Phoenicians invaded Italy and Sicily, with 300,000 men. That's no mean amount of troops, right? I believe that happened, even though Herodotus describes it a little differently, because the Phoenicians of Carthage were subject to the Tyrians at this time, and there is other testimony that, that, um, that corroborates that. So we see Herodotus is giving the the history of these four kings, which are prophesied by Daniel in chapter 11. On the fate of the ten tribes, I will cite 2 Esdras, book 13, and Josephus' Antiquities. Not only do the Arians and Parthians beyond Babylon meet the description of being beyond the Euphrates as these ancient writings infer, but also the Armenians, and the Armenians of this time are Scythians, and their chief district is Saka Sene, meaning, which is named for the Scythians, who the Persians called Saka. The Iberians, the Massagete, and all the Scythians who ventured up through the Black and Caspian coasts, and the Caucasus, looking at the Euphrates River the, the course of the Euphrates River. I'm going to cite 2 Esdras, which is usually called by scholars 4 Esdras, Book 13, verses 39 through 45, from the King James Apocrypha. And this is what it said. And whereas thou sawest that he gathered another peaceable multitude unto him, those of the ten tribes, which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hoshea the king, the last king in Israel, whom Salamanasar, the king of Assyria, led away captive. And he carried them over the waters. And so they came into another land. But they took this counsel among themselves, that they would leave the multitude of the nations and go forth into a further country where mankind never dwelt, that they might keep there their statutes, 
which they never kept in their own land. And they entered into the Euphrates by the narrow places of the river. For the Most High then showed signs for them, and held still the flood, meaning the river, until they were passed over. For through that country there was a great way to go, namely of a year and a half. And the same region is called Arsareth. Now, a lot of people might scoff at this passage, but it's very clear that the track of the first Israelites who departed from Mesopotamia, the people that the Greeks knew as Chimerians, was across Anatolia and into Europe and down the Danube River into the plains of Hungary. That's where the Chimerians first settled. They were pushed further west later on by the tribes of the, of, of the Goths and the Saka and, and the other Scythians who were pushing into Europe around the Black Sea and down the Danube. But on the plains of Hungary to this very day, there's a river named the Suret River, which branches, which, which actually feeds the, the Danube River. And our Sereth would, in Hebrew, indicate the mountains in the region of the Sereth River, the mountains of Sereth. I don't think that's a coincidence, and, and the distance is, is just right. So I sort of believe that this passage in, in 2 Esdras is actually tracing the route of the Chimerians into Europe. From Josephus, Antiquities 11, 11, 133. And I will only quote a small portion of that passage. Therefore, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates until now and are an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. Strabo, the geographer, Polybius, he, he was a historian and geographer. That there, there are several others, um, historians amongst the Greeks, besides Herodotus, who wrote volumes about the people of the East, as well as the West and the North. They wrote volumes about the Persians, about the... Um, about the Syrians, about the peoples of the Caucasus, the Armenians and the Iberians. Xenophon, famous book, Xenophon's Anabasis. Xenophon was the general of an army. And Xenophon ended up with his army, his Greek army, in Babylon. And when the mercenary effort that, he was, that his army was hired for failed, they had to fight their way back. And they took the high ground back. And these 10,000 troops, about half of them made it back to Greece. Most of them died not in battle, but from the cold. They took the high ground through Anatolia and along the back sea, Black Sea to get back to Greece. And they fought their way back most of the way because the Persians wanted to destroy them. Xenophon described all the people of the Persian world 
and the, the, the Anatolian world along the Euphrates River as his troops fled. He wrote a very um, detailed story about all the peoples they encountered on the way back from Babylon. Strabo, the geographer, wrote a very detailed geography describing all the people of Anatolia and Mesopotamia and, and, and Europe and every other land that he knew of. And there were many others who followed suit. And beyond the Euphrates, from where Josephus was sitting in Jerusalem or in Galilee, beyond the Euphrates, we find Parthians, we find Scythians, we find Persians. We find all these people that we, we know and whose names we're familiar with, but we don't find any Jews. Josephus, in his book of Wars of the Judeans, was very concerned about the Alans and the Parthians, and he wrote that book for the northern barbarians so that they would know what was becoming of the people of Judea and their wars. He wrote that book to interest the northern barbarians in the plight of Judea, which was suffering under the oppression of the Roman Caesars. That's why Josephus wrote his book. He explains that in the preface to that book. The only people that could be northern barbarians at the time of Josephus Opposite the Euphrates are the Parthians and the Scythians and the other subdivisions of the Scythians, such as the Armenians. Ar Armenia is a Hebrew word. And the Iberians. And Iberia is a Hebrew word. They're the people Josephus wrote for. And the Alans and the Goths beyond them, who Josephus knew were amongst the children of Israel. The dispersion. The immense multitude not to be estimated by numbers. There are no Jews there. That there might be some Judeans, some, some exiles centered around Babylon and sprinkled throughout some of the other cities of Mesopotamia, but they sure as hell can't be described as being beyond the Euphrates and an immense multitude not to be estimated by numbers. They're only a small minority in those cities that still identified themselves from the Babylonian captivity as Judah. Hosea 12.9 says of the Israelites being deported by the Assyrians, and I, Yahweh God, from the land of Egypt, will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles or tents as in the days of the solemn feasts. And not only do we have descriptions of the Scythians living in such a fashion, as Herodotus describes in book four of his histories, which I will read, but their very name, Scythian, which in Greek is skuthes, or skuthes, may certainly be derived from the Hebrew word for tabernacle or tent, which is sukkoth. Skuth, sukkoth. That's not a stretch. Strabo tells us that over 400 years later, the Scythians and the Scythian Germans were still living in this fashion. 
It makes no sense that the people who rapidly became and who still are the world's greatest engineers would for so long dwell without a house and without a city, except that Yahweh God, through the prophet Hosea, said that they would. Let me read Herodotus so that we could see how our Scythian ancestors, if indeed we are white Europeans, we have Scythian ancestors, how they lived. Herodotus, Book 4, Section 46. The Euxine Sea. The Euxine Sea is the Greek word for the Black Sea. E-U-X-I-N-E. The Euxine Sea, where Darius now went to war, has nations dwelling around it. With the one exception of the Scythians, more unpolished than those of any other region that we know of. For setting aside Anacarsis and the Scythian people, there is not within this region a single nation which can be put forward as having any claims to wisdom or which has produced a single person of any high repute. The Scythians indeed have in one respect, and that the very most important of all, those that fall under man's control, shown themselves wiser than any other nation upon the earth. Their customs otherwise are not such as I admire. The one thing of which I speak is the contrivance whereby they make it impossible for the enemy who invades them to escape destruction, while they themselves are entirely out of his reach, unless it please them to engage with him. Having neither cities nor forts, and carrying their dwellings with them wherever they go. Accustomed, moreover, one and all of them, to shoot from horseback, and living not by husbandry, but on their cattle, their wagons, the only houses that they possess. How can they fail of being unconquerable and unassailable even? In other words, Herodotus felt that that was their greatest asset. They had no cities. They had no towns. They lived in their tents and in their wagons. They actually had wagons with tents on them, very much like the covered wagons that our pioneers had. I'm going to read a passage from Strabo. I'm going to read a few of these tonight. Strabo, Book 7, Chapter 1. Part three. I'm only. It's a long chapter, right? I'm only going to read a small portion of it. It is a common characteristic, and, and he's talking about the Scythians, and he's talking about the Germans. Let Let me start a little sooner. Now, as to the tribe of the Swabi, we all know the Swabi, the Swabians of Germany. It is the largest, for it extends from the Rhine to the Albis or the Elbe River. And the part of them even dwell on the far side of the Albus, east of the Elbe. As for the instance, the Hermanduri and the Langobardi, they're considered part of the Swabi, the Swabians by Strabo. And at, and, and at that time, they were east of the Elbe, where migrated, the Germanic people migrated from the east to the west. And at the present time, these later at least, have, to the last man, been driven in flight out of their country into the land on the far side of the river. In other words, they, they fled west, right? It is a common characteristic of all the peoples in this part of the world that they migrate with ease, 
because of the meagerness of their livelihood and because they do not till the soil or even store up food, but live in small huts that are merely temporary structures, and they live for the most part off their flocks as the nomads do. So that, in imitation of the nomads, they load their household belongings on their wagons, and with their beasts, turn wheresoever they think best. But other German tribes are still more indigent. I mean the Cheruski, the Caddy, the, the Gamma, Gamma Brevi, and the Katari, and also near the ocean, the Sugambri, the Kalbi, the Brookteri, and the Kimbri. And also the Chalci, the Kali, the Kampsiani, and several others. Both the Visigurus and the Lupius rivers, I'm not sure which rivers he means, run in the same direction as the Amasius, the Lupius being about 600 stadia from the Rhine and flowing through the country of the lesser Brookteri. Germany has also the Salus River, and it was between the Salus and the Rhine that Drusus Germanicus, while he was successfully carrying on the war, the war of the Romans against the Germans, came to his end. So the, the Romans of the time of Strabo were very, very intimately acquainted with all of these German tribes. Strabo describes that the, what well, the less indigent of the German tribes did not have towns or houses. They lived in their wagons and in temporary structures. Hosea 12.9 says of the Israelites, and I will repeat it, being deported by the Assyrians, and I, Yahweh thy God, from the land of Egypt, will yet make thee to dwell in tents, as in the days of the solemn feasts. 600 years after the deportation, 700 years after the deportation of the Israelites, according to Strabo, their descendants, the Germanic people, are still dwelling in tents. These people are the world's greatest engineers. Nothing explains this except that God said they would. A supporting passage from Strabo Book 11, Chapter 2, Part 1. Now the Tanais, the Tanais River to the Greeks is what we call the Don, right? It's the river that basically, I think it separates the Ukraine from Russia. On some maps it does. I don't know if it does today, but it, it's in the Ukraine and it empties into the Sea of Azov, which is that little patch of water above the Black Sea. Now the Tanais flows from the northerly region, not, however, as most people think, in a course diametrically opposite to that of the Nile, but more to the east than the Nile. And like the Nile, its sources are unknown. Nobody's traveled far enough north, right? Yet a considerable part of the Nile is well known, since it traverses a country which is everywhere easily accessible and since it is navigable for a great distance in land. But as for the Tanais, although we know its outlets, they are two in number, and are in the most northerly region of Lake Mahiotis, which is the Sea of Azov on our maps, being 60 stadia distant from one another, yet but a little of the part 
that is beyond its outlets is known to us. Because of the coldness and the poverty of the country. This poverty can indeed be endured by the indigenous peoples who, in nomadic fashion, live on flesh and milk. But people from other tribes cannot stand it, meaning the Greeks. And besides the nomads being disinclined to intercourse with any other people and being superior both in numbers and in might, have blocked off whatever parts of the country are passable or whatever parts of the river happen to be navigable. This is what has caused some to assume that the Tanais has its courses in the Caucasian mountains. Flows in great... Well, some days Skype works better than others, right? Sorry about that, but my call just dropped. It wasn't me. I'm 10 feet away from the computer I'm running on. So basically, Diodorus Siculus in his 11th book describes the people of the Black Sea region, who Tacitus describes later on as Germans, and as Sarmatians, as Scythians, and they live in total indigence. They don't have cities. They only have their wagons, their tents, and their flocks. And they live off their flocks, a pastoral life. Those are the ancestors of today's Germans and some of what we consider the Slavic peoples today, who are, who are related. And from Strabo and from Herodotus, we see that Hosea 12.9 is certainly why, why our German ancestors lived in tents and wagons for so many centuries. And they lived in tents and wagons for many centuries when they weren't threatened at all by outsiders. They had rivalries amongst each other. There was the, there was the constant push to the West, which our people endured, so very often begrudgingly. But they really had no threats from outsiders for, great, for a great number of centuries. Herodotus in Book 4, Chapter 61, 
describes the Scythians' use of animal bones for firewood. Where in his translation, George Rawlinson notes in his edition of Herodotus that we should compare Ezekiel 24.5, which says, Take the choice of the flock and burn also the bones under it and make it boil well and let them seethe the bones therein. More strikingly, Herodotus says of the Scythians, and this is 430 B.C. now, that they never used swine for any purpose, nor did they breed them. That's in Book 4, Paragraph 63, where Herodotus says, Such are the observances of the Scythians with respect to sacrifice. They never use swine for, for the purpose, nor indeed is it their want to breed them in any part of their country. Now it's evident that this had changed by the time of Strabo, who wrote about 400 years later. And Strabo, talking about the Gauls, let me explain that name first. The Gauls, Gaul is the name that the Romans gave all Germans. Where Strabo says Gauls, the Greek says Galatahi. The English translator wrote Gauls. The Galatahi are also the Germans. That's the name that the Greeks gave to all Germans. We see Gaul as being France alone and the portion of Germany that is west of the Rhine. That's historically Gaul in later Roman times. In early Roman times, all of the Germans were called Gauls. The... Um, the word German, Germania, Germanus, that word came into use in the first century B.C., around the time of Caesar. Strabo explains it. He says that the Germans were called Germans because Germania means authentic and because the Romans believed that the Germans east of the Rhine to be more authentic Gauls or Galatahi than the Galatahi or Gauls west of the Rhine, especially in what we know today as France. Now, now that is probably partially true because it can be established that much of France was settled by Greeks and by other Chepetsi tribes and by the Phoenicians who settled its coasts and its river valleys. And when the Galatahi came into Gaul, they encountered those people. The Galatahi are descended from the Cimmerians. They're descended from the Scythians. We find them all the way to the Black Sea. The Greeks gave the name to all Germans, to all of the Scythians. I believe the Greeks gave the name to the Scythians, and I don't have it recorded, but it starts to appear in the tragic poets of the 5th century B.C., Before then, they were only Scythians, or Kimeroi, Kim, or Cimmerians, right? Or Saka, Sakans, after the Persian. 
wherever you see Khamri in the Assyrian inscriptions, wherever you see the Khmerians of the Assyrian inscriptions, the Persian word for them is Saka, and the Greeks called them Scythians. But in the tragic poets of the 5th century BC, we start seeing the name Galatahi. And that, I believe, is because Homer called them, and, and they were poked fun at for being milk drinkers, for living off of their flocks. The Greeks saw that as very barbaric, the cultured agrarian Greeks. The Greek word for milk is galatas, or galata, or gala. So it would be natural to call people who lived off of their flocks galatahi. Now, I'm not entirely sure of the Roman reason for shortening that to Gauls, except that there is a Roman word, Gaulus, that describes a milk bucket. Now, whether that's why they called them Gauls or not, I don't know. But wherever we see Galatahi in Greek writing, we see Gauls in Roman writing. So Herodotus in 450 BC, Herodotus actually visited Scythians. In Herodotus' time, the Scythians had reached the land of Thrace around the Black Sea and started to migrate down the Danube, especially on the northern half of it. And Herodotus had actually traveled to the Danube. He actually visited the city of Istria at the mouth of the Danube in the Black Sea and other Greek and Malaysian cities. The Greeks and the Malaysians all had settlements along around the Black Sea and along the Danube River long before the Scythians got there. And we always had the Thracians in that region who were a tribe known to the Greeks and they were Japhethites too, but they were not Greek. Herodotus was there. He was along the Danube. He wrote about it. He visited it. He stayed there a, a long, a, you know, for an extended stay, and he brought the knowledge home with him back to Halicarnassus, and he wrote. And, and that's how we, we know. He actually visited the places that he wrote about. He visited Phoenicia, even though his information wasn't the most accurate historically. It was accurate for his time. He visited Egypt, so, so he wasn't simply an armchair historian. And he says that they use no swine. Well, by the time of Strabo, Strabo describes the Gauls of the Galatahi, and he says that food they have in very great quantities, along with milk and flesh of all sorts, but particularly the flesh of hogs, both fresh and salted. Their hogs run wild, and they are of exceptional height, boldness, and swiftness. So we see that um, the Galatahi or the Gauls had no problem eating swine 400 years after Herodotus. I thought that was interesting anyway. But Herodotus tells us that they never used it for sacrifice and they never used it for any purpose. Herodotus describes a Scythian mode of divination. 
from bundles of rods or sticks. And he says in section 67 of his fourth book, Scythia has an abundance of soothsayers who foretell the future by means of a number of willow wands. A large bundle of these wands is brought and laid on the ground. The soothsayer unties the bundle and places each wand by itself, at the same time uttering his prophecy. Then, while he is still speaking, he gathers the rods together again and makes them up once more into a bundle. This mode of divination, Herodotus says, is of home growth in Scythia. Now, George Rawlinson has a note here. It was not, however, confined to Scythia, he says. There is distinct allusion to such a mode of divination in Hosea, chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, My people ask counsel of their stocks, and their staff declares unto them. It's also noted by Tacitus in Germania, his description of Germany, in section 10. So we see in the ancient world only two people use this mode of divination, the Scythians and the ancient Israelites described by Hosea. And that is not a coincidence. Strabo, in his 11th book, if I can find it, Book 11, Chapter 3, Section 6, discusses some customs among the Iberians. Now, the Iberians are without doubt Scythians. They're identified as Scythians by all the ancient Greeks. And the Albanians of the Caucasus Mountains, which we find much like many of those customs in our Old Testament. And Herodotus even describes sacrificial sacrifice procedures among the Magi and Persians very much like we find in the Levitical sacrifices. And I won't quote that, but it's in his first book in section 132. In many instances from Gaul to India, the priesthoods are said to belong to a particular tribe. And we have the Magi, who Herodotus calls a tribe among the Persians. And we find this practice among the Greeks. For instance, Strabo in his eighth book describes a special priesthood held by certain families of the Arcadians. And Herodotus tells us that the Persians would not sacrifice without a Magi present in Book 1, Section 132. As Strabo in his eighth book tells us that the Celts would not sacrifice without a Druid present in his eighth book, Chapter 3, Section 25. And as Strabo says in, in um, his 12th book, that certain it, it, swine were considered impure among the Greeks, and they were only accepted for sacrifice at certain temples of Aphrodite, and we'll get into that in a moment. So we see swine, that, that there was great division over it in the ancient world. Strabo, in his, book, in, in his 11th book, 
he read he he writes of these um customs among the Iberians, and these are absolutely Hebrew customs. And I'm going to read Strabo's Book Eleven, Chapter Three, Section Six, where he says there are also four castes among the inhabitants of Iberia. One and the first of all is that from which they appoint their kings. The appointee being both the nearest of kin to his predecessor and the eldest. Whereas the second in line administers justice and commands the army. The second caste is that of the priests. Who, among other things, attend to all matters of controversy with the neighboring peoples. So the priests are the judges, right? The third is that of the soldiers and the farmers. And the fourth is that of the common people who are slaves of the king and perform all the services that pertain to human livelihood. Their possessions are held in common by them according to their families, although the eldest, the eldest of each family is the ruler and steward of each estate. Such are the Iberians and their country. That is exactly the way Hebrew society was organized. And these Iberians are Scythians. They're not Jews. All these are little things, but all of these little identifications, they add up. And they complement the historical and the biblical attestations. To me, it's without doubt once you see the entire picture. Here's the passage where Strabo says that among certain Greeks, swine were considered to be impure. He's writing about Comana on Pontus. It's a district of Anatolia along the Black Sea. It was settled by Greeks. He's writing about a certain man who was a priest in Comana in Pontus, and he says he was carried off by an acute disease which either attacked him in consequence of excessive repletion or else, as the people around the temple said, was inflicted upon him because of the anger of the goddess. For the dwelling of both the priest and the priestess is within the circuit of the sacred precinct, and the sacred precinct, apart from its sanctity in other respects, is most conspicuously free from the impurity of the eating of swine's flesh. In fact, the city as a whole is free from it. And swine cannot even be brought into the city. Cleon, however, among the first things he did when he arrived, displayed the character of the robber by transgressing this custom as though he had come, not as priest, but as a corrupter of all that was sacred. Now, the people of Comana, they weren't Jews. Strabo 9, Book 9, Chapter 5, Paragraph 17. Now, Callimachus, in his iambic, Strabo's quoting a Greek writer who lived about 300 years before he did, says that of all 
the Aphrodites, meaning the temples, the various temples throughout the Greek word of Aphrodite. For, and he says that there was not merely one goddess of this name, just like we have 10,000 Virgin Marys, the ancient Greeks had 10,000 Aphrodites, right? Our Lady of this, Our Lady of that, Our Lady of there, Our Lady of here. They, that, that's an old pagan custom, right? Aphrodite casts Midas, surpasses all in wisdom. Now, this is according to Callimachus, the ancient Greek poet. Since she alone accepts the sacrifice of swine. So we see that all the other temples of Aphrodite would not accept the sacrifice of swine. And Strabo continues, And surely he was very learned. If any other man was, in all his life, as he himself states, wish to recount these things. But the writers of later times have discovered that not merely one Aphrodite, but several have accepted this, have accepted this right. And that among these was the Aphrodite at Metropolis, and that one of the cities included in the settlement transmitted it to the Ansorian rite. So we see in, in, in Greece, we see that swine was not accepted everywhere that a lot of people considered it to be unclean, and Strabo himself talks about the uncleanness of the animal, and for that reason, many people didn't want anything to do with it. But the Scythians, according to Herodotus, originally used it for nothing. They didn't use it for any purpose, as Herodotus tells us. From a map drawn from the accounts of Diodorus Siculus, Diodorus Siculus was a very respected historian of the first century BC. Found in volume two of Harvard's Loeb Library edition of Diodorus's Library of History, we see several branches of the Scythians, notably the Sacae and the Massagetahi, the Saugians and the Tokarians and they were a branch of the Scythians. We know their name from recent archaeology because the so-called Tarim Basin mummies, which date from about 400 BC, are considered to be Tokarians. Dwelling about the Jakarta's River, north of the sources of the Indus. Their location here is evident also from the accounts of Herodotus and Strabo. The Massagete and the Sacae were among the last of the Scythian tribes to have entered into Europe, as even Sharon Turner in his history of the Anglo-Saxons has traced them across the continent. Someday I'll add that actual citation to this paper. When this early home of the Scythian tribes is noticed, when we see that they dwelt in the lands just north of what we know today as India, and we realize that the, the phrase rivers of Ethiopia in the Bible, in Hebrew, are the rivers of Cush, and that the eastern or Hindu Kush is what is meant because the Babylonian Empire was once identified in the Bible as Kush, and we see that in the account of Moses and his interaction with the Midianites 
who dwelt in what we would call Arabia, but which was at that time part of the land of Cush, which was part of the Babylonian Empire, the first Babylonian Empire. Only then can we understand the prophecy of Zephaniah. At Zephaniah 3.10, he writes the words of God, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which is Cush in Hebrew, so he's saying from beyond the rivers of Cush, my suppliance, the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring my offering. Well, once we see that he means the, the Cush of Mesopotamia, and once we understand that the rivers of Cush are the rivers of Mesopotamia. Then we understand that Zephaniah is talking about the Sake and the Masagete and their kin. They are the dispersed of Israel. They are tribes of the Scythians. It was to those tribes that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Yahweh, would come. Micah chapter 4, verse 8. Daniel 2.44, Matthew 21.43. The further from Mesopotamia that the tribes of the Scythians traveled, the stronger and more lasting a nation they became. And that's a matter of prophecy. Micah 4.7. I'm going to read Micah 4, 7, and 8. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Daniel 2.44 states this. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's the last part of the prophecy of the world empires which Daniel gave in Daniel chapter 2 from the Babylonian through the Persian through the Greek and through the Roman. And this passage in Daniel 2.44 this kingdom being described there, that would be set up in the days of those kings, the Greek, the Persian, the Babylonian, and the Roman, that would last forever. We have to look for what people destroyed and supplanted those ancient empires. The Parthians were Scythians. I will establish that in my next paper that I present on this topic in several weeks. The Masagete and the Sake were Scythians. They all came from the Assyrian deport from the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites. 
We will establish that over the weeks to come. It's from them that we get the Germanic tribes of the Goths and the Vandals and the Swebi and the other people. And it is those people who are the stone cut out of the mountain without hands of Daniel chapter 2. It is those people, the Parthians supplanted the Babylonian and Persian empires. The Goths and the Vandals and the other Germanic tribes supplanted and eventually replaced as the center of Western civilization the Roman and the Greeks, the Romans and the Greeks, and became the inheritors of Western culture. They have to be the people of God described by Micah and by Daniel. There is no doubt. And we see that we have the archaeological records to put it together. Herodotus described a barren northern Europe in his time. In his fifth book, in sections 9 and 10, and the evidence of a Scythian, or German and Celtic, if they have to be called that, migration westward to inhabit that barren northern Europe, calls to mind Deuteronomy 32.8, which says, and I quote, when the Most High divided to the nations, meaning the Genesis 10 nations, their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the Adamic people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now the Thracians claimed that the country beyond the Ister, the lower Danube, was possessed by bees, on which account it is impossible to penetrate farther. That's a quote from Herodotus. I'm going to read the whole passage here. Herodotus chapter, book 5, chapter, well, well, sections 9 and 10. Herodotus says, As regards the region lying north of this country, meaning lying north of Thrace, which was on the southern side of the Danube River, west of the Black Sea and north of Greece, As regards the region lying north of this country, no one can say with any certainty what men inhabit it. It appears, now this is 450 B.C., it appears that you no sooner cross the Ister than you enter on an interminable wilderness. The only people whom I can hear is dwelling beyond the Ister are the race named the Sigini, or the Siginahi, who wear, they say, a dress like the Medes. Now, Herodotus is talking about the land that would be to us present-day Ukraine, Poland, Hungary, the only people of whom I can hear is dwelling beyond the Ister or the Danube, are the race named the Siginae who wear, 
they say, address like the Medes and have horses which are covered entirely with a coat of shaggy hair, five fingers in length. They, meaning the horses, are a small breed, flat-nosed, and not strong enough to bear men on their backs. But when yoked to chariots, they are among the swiftest known, which is the reason why the people of that country use chariots. Their borders, meaning the Sigane, right? Their borders reach down almost to the Enedi, upon the Adriatic Sea. Not now the Enedi upon the Adriatic Sea, that would be the city of Venice, which was founded by Phoenicians. And they call themselves colonists of the Medes. But how can they be colonists of the Medes? I, meaning Herodotus, for my part, cannot imagine. Still, nothing is impossible in the long lapse of the ages. Sigane is the name which the Ligurians, now the Ligurians are people that live along the coast between France and Italy, and they are related to the Etruscans, who dwell above Marsilia or Marseille in modern France, give to traders. While among the Cyprians, the word, well, well, the word means spears, according to Herodotus, but it's probably not related, right? I'm going to read a passage from Strabo's 11th book. Strabo's Geography, book 11, chapter 11. This is, Strabo, I don't think, was conscious at all of the passage in Herodotus when he wrote 400 years later that there were a people called the Sagini who lived on the Caspian Sea. And Strabo says the Sagini imitate the Persians in all their customs. Except that they use ponies that are small and shaggy, though unable to carry a horseman, are yoked together in a four-horse team and are driven by women trained thereto from childhood. Now, we have these people in Strabo who are along the Caspian Sea, who imitate the Persians in all their customs, and the Persians and the Medes were very close and part of the same empire for several centuries right after the deportations of the children of Israel. And the Sagini Strabo doesn't say that they are Persians. He says that they imitate the Persians in all their customs, but that their horses are small and shaggy. And the Sagini are absolutely the same people near Persia, and Media was right near Persia also, that Strabo was describing as being the only people north of the Ister or the Danube River in Europe. And Herodotus says they're the only people north of the Ister in Europe, and they have the same kind of horses. And they dress like the Medes dress. And they have the same customs that the Medes have. And Herodotus can't believe they're colonists of the Medes, as they claim that they came from Media, and he can't figure out how that could be, but that's how it was. So we see that the first inhabitants known to the Greeks, who lived north of the Danube River, are from Mesopotamia. 
and they associate themselves with the Medes. While Strabo associates their distant relatives 400 years later who stayed behind in Mesopotamia with the same name and the same kind of horses. And he associates them with the Persians. But the Persians and the Medes were always very close historically, even being part and parcel with one another in the same government for several centuries, first under Median rule and later under Persian rule. The Medo-Persian Empire, right? So we have clear and definitive proof in our histories that Europe is being settled by peoples from Mesopotamia. Yeah, you know, there's a tale in in, in um, Herodotus in, in chapter 10, and I'm sorry, in, in section 10 of chapter 5, and the Thracians use an excuse that they couldn't inhabit the land north of the Danube themselves because it was on account of the great number of bees, of bees that possessed it. And, and there's actually a, um, and, and this it is on a, on, on a more prophetic level, we see in the wisdom of Solomon, but I won't quote it, we'll see, we see in Exodus chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, where Yahweh says, I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee, and I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Horite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before thee. And we see the Thracians say that they weren't allowed to inhabit the areas north of the Danube because of the bees, and we see promises in Scripture that Yahweh would clear out the inhabitants of the land with bees. And, and that, I had to put that together, right? It, it, um, it's an intriguing connection, even though it's not a, not a definite connection, but it seems to me to be quite prophetic that that land was being reserved for our Scythian ancestors, who are the descendants of the children of Israel, those very same people. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 16, foretell of the destruction of Assyria. And verses um, 17 and 18, verses 20 through 27, Isaiah eleven sixteen in this description of, of the coming destruction of Assyria, all fully assure us that the children of Israel, that the Israelites who were taken captive by the Assyrians, would be actively involved in the destruction of the Assyrians. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 24 through 27, again mentions the, the, the coming destruction of the Assyrians. Herodotus tells us in his history that the Medes were already at war with the Assyrians when the Scythians invaded Media during the reign of the Median king Cyaxares, and this is um, 
He ruled from 625 to 585 BC, according to Herodotus' chronology. Herodotus tells us that the Scythians prevented the Medes from destroying Nineveh, and that they themselves became the masters of Asia, which was a position that they held for 28 years. While Herodotus states that Cyaxares conquered Nineveh himself after becoming free of the Scythians, this is impossible since Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC. And I really think that in some places in this story, Herodotus is very likely repeating what is later Median propaganda because there is no room in the chronology for a 28-year hegemony of Scythians between the Median siege of Nineveh and the destruction of Nineveh. It's just not there. Strabo tells us that in ancient times, greater Armenia, and by that he means the Scythians of Armenia, ruled the whole of Asia. After it broke up the empire of the Syrians, it was very common because of the similarity of the names for ancient Greeks to confuse the word Syrian with Assyrian, right? Strabo is obviously confusing Syrians with Assyrians. And he mentions greater media later in the paragraph. Greater Armenia is the first Scythian land, according to Diodorus Siculus. And I will quote that momentarily. Along with the witness of Herodotus, which was albeit indirect, we see that Isaiah was surely correct. The Israelites once we realize that the Scythians are the Israelites who were deported by the Assyrians, and that's why they're present in Mesopotamia, the Israelites, and surely with the Medes alongside them, as Isaiah tells us would happen, destroyed Nineveh, and they destroyed the Assyrian Empire. Diodorus Siculus says of the Scythians, and I will quote Diodorus from Book 2, Chapter 43. But now, in turn, we shall discuss the Scythians who inhabit the country bordering upon India. The Scythians north of India. That would be the Sake and the Masagete. This people originally possessed little territory. But later, as they gradually increased in power, they seized much territory by reason of their deeds of might and their bravery and advanced their nation to great leadership and renown. At first, then, they dwelt on the Araxes River. The Araxes River was in northern media. The Araxes River is that place in northern Mesopotamia where the Persians under Cyrus launched a campaign and had a great battle against the Scythians. And that is where Cyrus, the king of Persia, is said to have ultimately lost his life, battling the Scythians. After crossing the Araxes River in northern Media, which is present-day Armenia, and it's also in ancient Armenia. 
Armenia being a nation that didn't really develop until after the children of Israel were deported to the cities of the Medes. Armenia is actually a Hebrew word. It comes from the Hebrew terms ar and mini, which means mountain parts. That's what it means, the Hebrew word. Diodorus Siculus says, At first then they dwelt on the Araxes River, although few in number and despised because of their lack of renown. But since one of their early kings was warlike and of unusual skill as a general, they acquired territory in the mountains as far as the Caucasus and in the steppes along the ocean and Lake Mahiotis, which is the Sea of Azov today. And the rest of that country, as far as the Tanais, which is the Don River that flows down through the Ukraine and empties into the Black Sea or the Sea of Azov. But some time later, the descendants of these kings subdued much of the territory beyond the Tanais River as far as Thrace. These are the Scythians that the Greeks called Galatahi later on that the Romans called Gauls. For this people increased to great strength and had notable kings, one of whom gave his name to the Sacae. Now, Diodorus Siculus imagines that these tribes are named after eponymous names, after patriarchs, another to the Massagete, another to the Aramaspi, and several other tribes received their names in like manner. Now, we really know that the Sakae received their names because Saka is the Persian form of the name for the people that the Assyrians called the Qumri, or the House of Amri. That the Greeks called Kimaroi when the Assyrians had the hegemony. The Greeks called the Scythians after the Assyrian name. When the Persians gained the hegemony, the Greeks learned that they were called the Saka or the Sake by the Persians, and the Greeks used that name also. But they were all the same people, whether they were Qumri or Scythians or Sake. And in the inscriptions, where we see the word Chimerians or Qumri in Assyrian, most of those inscriptions are multilingual. And even ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament tells us that the Persian form of the same name is Saka. Isaiah chapter 13 foretells the destruction of Babylon. And it's ancient Babylon, not mystery Babylon. 13.4 states that the kingdoms of the nations will perform such destruction. 13.17 indicates that the Medes are one of these nations. 13.3 indicates that the children of Israel are also. 13.12 is surely an allusion to Cyrus, the king of Persia, who led the takeover of Babylon. He's mentioned by name in Isaiah 44.28. Isaiah 14, verses 3 through 23, are a parable foretelling of Babylon's destruction. 
Isaiah's statement concerning Cyrus in Isaiah 45.1, and I quote, Thus saith Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the line of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. And Herodotus said of the Babylonians, and I quote, a battle was fought a short distance from a city in which the Babylonians were defeated by the Persian king, whereupon they withdrew within their defenses. Here they shut themselves up and made light of his siege, having laid a store of provisions for many years in preparation against this attack. For when they saw Cyrus conquering nation after nation, they were convinced that he would never stop and that their turn would come at last. Herodotus, Book 1, Paragraph 190. After a short time, Herodotus describes the Persians easily gained access to the city by redirecting the Euphrates River, which ran under its walls, dividing the city in two, something the Babylonians did not foresee, and a project they took notice of too late. In any case, Cyrus took Babylon just like the Bible said he would, that the gates of the city would be opened to him that he would take it without destroying it in a siege. Isaiah chapter 21 is a parable involving Elam, which is the, the chief district of the land we know as Persia, and Media and the destruction of Babylon. Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 also prophecy of the fall of Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 50 verses 3 through 4 indicate, again, that the Israelites will participate with the Persian conquest of Babylon. <clears throat> Several other passages in, Isaiah, in Jeremiah chapter 50 also indicate as much. Jeremiah also indicates this is chapter 51, verse 27. And from history we know that people related to the Scythians inhabited the mountains of Ararat and Armenia. And Ashkenaz, also mentioned at 5127, is a Japhethite tribe who lives in that area. Jeremiah 5127 says, Set ye up a standard in the land, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations against her, call together against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a captain against her, ca cause the horses to come up as the rough caterpillars. Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 31 describes the Persian system of post, which is described by Herodotus in 8 in, in Herodotus's, 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 I'm sorry, Book 8, Chapter 98. There we see a, Porsche, a, a sort of Persian Pony Express is defined. And Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 31 mentions that same thing. And this shows how familiar both men are with the, the, the methods and, and, and the Inventions of the Persians, right? Well, we can't tell from Herodotus whether the Sakte, Scythians, or other Israelites were with the Persians when they took Babylon. We do have Persian records which indicate such. Since those Persian records, those Persian inscriptions, profess 
that Cyrus was already the ruler of the countries of the north as far west as Lydia in Anatolia when he turned southward upon Babylon. So Cyrus had under his control the Scythian nations of the north, at least as far as the Caucasus Mountains, Ararat, and Armenia. Herodotus describes Persian forces in great detail as they were less than 60 years later under Xerxes during his great invasion of Greece. And at 764, Book 7, Chapter 64 of his history, Herodotus mentions the Sacae or the Skiths, as he calls them, the Sacae or Skiths, along with the Bactrians. At 766, he talks about the Arians, Parthians, Sogdians, and Caspians. These are all branches of the same Scythian people, which the deported children of Israel grew into. At 767, and several times elsewhere, he relates some custom or implement of these people to the Medes. At 762, he says, these Medes were anciently called by all people Arians. And we see the word Arian used of the Persian kings, who were in part descended from the Medes. Cyrus and Xerxes call themselves Arians in their inscriptions, which is intriguing. Herodotus, I believe, is certainly confusing the Medes with Israelites who were settled in Media by the Assyrians, because the word Arya is certainly Hebrew for the term, for the phrase mountain of Yahweh, as the children of Israel are described in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, and in many other places. The Scythians were said by Herodotus three times to have the Sagaris as a favorite weapon, and only the Scythians are mentioned by him with this weapon. Rawlinson translates it battle axe, for which we could compare the description of the battle axes used by the Israelites in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 20. Sharon Turner, in his History of the Anglo-Saxon, states, that the battle axe was the preferred weapon of the Saxon all the way to the Norman conquest. The ancient Assyrian inscriptions of Xerxes substantiate Herodotus' account of the people who were under control of the Persians. And Xerxes says, these are the countries, in addition to Persia, over which I am king, under the shadow of Ahura Mazda, the Zoroastrian deity of Persia, over which I hold sway, which are bringing their tribute to me, whatever is commanded them by me, that they do and they abide by my laws. Media, Elam, they are the principal districts of the Medo-Persian Empire. Arachosia, Urartu. Urartu is the Persian Armenia. Drangiana, Parthia, so we see the Parthians, Haria, Bactria, Sogdia, Chorasmia, Babylonia, Assyria, Satagidia, Sardis, Egypt, the Ionians who live on the Salty Sea and those who live beyond, Maka, Arabia, Gandhara, India, Cappadocia, Dayan, the 
Amerigian Chimerians. Now, Amerigian Chimerians is also a term we see in Herodotus. And in the Persian and Elamite versions of this inscription of Xerxes, the word is Sakins. In the Akkadian version, it's Chimerians or Cymri. The Chimerians wearing pointed caps. The Skudra, the Akupish, Libya, Baneshu, the Carians, and Kush. In his histories, in Book 7, Chapter 64, just like we just read from a Persian inscription of the ancient King Xerxes, who, dwelt, who, who ruled from 485 to 465 B.C. Herodotus also states that the Sacae, the Scythians, were clad in trousers and had on their heads tall, stiff caps rising to a point. A similar pointed cap, not so stiff, can be seen on the head of a Germanic chieftain pictured on a cup, paying homage to Augustus, on page 43 of the May-June 2001 issue of Archaeology Odyssey magazine. I'll try to have a picture of that online if I could get one tomorrow to put, to put with this podcast. The same type of hat worn by the Germanic chieftain can be seen on page 52 of the November-December 2002 issue a Biblical Archaeology Review, where it's pictured on the head of a figure excavated at Dor in Israel. On page 49 of the same issue, the same hat is seen in the famous inscription of the Israelite king Jehu on the black obelisk, a famous inscription found in Assyria. A Scythian headdress indeed, it was an Israelite headdress first. The pointed hat was an Israelite hat that the Scythians took with them. And we see it on Assyrian inscriptions. We see it in ancient Dor. We see it on the Israelite king. We see it on Germanic chieftains. And we see it in the pages of Herodotus. I would hope it is evident that Herodotus supported to a greater extent by later historians and also by the ancient inscriptions was an excellent and most valuable witness to dispersion of our Israelite ancestors and also their fulfillment of the many prophecies concerning them as we have seen here by comparing the accounts of Herodotus to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, and Zephaniah, and even in Daniel. The ancient inscriptions also corroborating the biblical accounts. We have the Greek classics. We have the Bible and the prophecies. And we have the Persian and the Assyrian inscriptions, and they all go hand in hand. They all corroborate each other. 
And there was absolutely no reason to doubt this. The Old Testament Israelites are surely not the same people being touted as the Jews of today. The Old Testament Israelites are the ancestors of the Germanic people. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. I don't think I'm going to do it next week, but I'm going to do it soon. My other paper on the Scythians, Classical Records, and the Identity of the Scythians, Parthians, and Related Tribes. I see these two papers, the one I presented tonight, and, and the next one I'm going to present as prerequisites to my um, German origins papers, which I hope to present this spring here on TalkShoe on Saturday nights. There are six of them. They're probably a little too verbose. But I draw on the same sources, the classics in archaeology, to prove that the German people are indeed the children of Israel. Thank you for listening. I'll be back Friday with Hosea chapter 3. Pray, shall we, and good night.